This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And during commencement season, we bring you some of the best commencement addresses from across the nation over the past 20 years or so, because, my goodness, you've had to endure some pretty bad commencement speeches. We figured we'd at least give you a chance to hear some of the great ones. And today we have Admiral William H. McRaven's speech to the graduating class of the University of Texas at Austin, in 2014, McRaven graduated from that very same school himself and went on to spend his entire career as a U.S. Navy SEAL officer. Among other things, McRaven is known for organizing and overseeing the raid that resulted in the death of Osama bin Laden in May of 2011. But standing before the graduating class at the University of Texas, McRaven was more interested in sharing some life lessons than war story. Here's how he began. I've been a Navy SEAL for 36 years, but it all began when I left UT for basic SEAL training in Coronado, California. Basic SEAL training is six months of long, torturous runs in the soft sand, midnight swims in the cold water off San Diego, obstacle courses, unending calisthenics, days without sleep, and always being cold, wet, and miserable. It is six months of being constantly harassed by professionally trained warriors who seek to find the weak of mind and body and eliminate them from ever becoming a Navy SEAL. But the training also seeks to find those students who can lead in an environment of constant stress, chaos, failure, and hardships. To me, basic SEAL training was a lifetime of challenges crammed into six months. So here are the 10 lessons I learned from basic SEAL training that hopefully will be of value to you as you move forward in life. Every morning, in SEAL training, my instructors, who at the time were all Vietnam veterans, would show up in my barracks room, and the first thing they'd do was inspect my bed. If you did it right, the corners would be square, the covers would be pulled tight, the pillow centered just under the headboard, and the extra blanket folded neatly at the foot of the rack. It was a simple task, mundane at best, but every morning we were required to make our bed to perfection. It seemed a little ridiculous at the time, particularly in light of the fact that we were aspiring to be real warriors, tough, battle-hardened SEALs. But the wisdom of this simple act has been proven to me many times over. If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a small sense of pride, and it will encourage you to do another task, and another, and another. And by the end of the day, that one task completed, will have turned into many tasks completed. Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that the little things in life matter. If you can't do the little things right, you'll never be able to do the big things right. And if by chance you have a miserable day, you will come home to a bed that is made, (laughs) that you made. And a made bed gives you encouragement that tomorrow will be better. So if you want to change the world, start off by making your bed. During SEAL training, the students students are all broken down into boat crews. Each crew is seven students, three on each side of a small rubber boat, and one coxswain to help guide the dinghy. Every day, your boat crew forms up on the beach and is instructed to get through the surf zone and paddle several miles down the coast. In the winter, the surf off San Diego can get to be eight to ten feet high, and it is exceedingly difficult to paddle through the plunging surf unless everyone digs in. Every paddle 
must be synchronized to the stroke count of the coxswain. Everyone must exert equal effort or the boat will turn against the wave and be unceremoniously dumped back on the beach. For the boat to make it to its destination, everyone must paddle. You can't change the world alone. You will need some help. And to truly get from your starting point to your destination takes friends, colleagues, the goodwill of strangers, and a strong coxswain to guide you. If you want to change the world, find someone to help you paddle. Over a few weeks of difficult training, my SEAL class, which started with 150 men, was down to just 42. There were now six boat crews of seven men each. I was in the boat with the tall guys, but the best boat crew we had was made up of the little guys, the munchkin crew, we called them. No one was over five foot five. The munchkin boat crew had one American Indian, one African American, one Polish American, one Greek American, one Italian American, and two tough kids from the Midwest. They out paddled, outran, and outswam all the other boat crews. The big men in the other boat crews would always make good natured fun of the tiny little flippers the munchkins put on their tiny little feet prior to every swim. But somehow these little guys from every corner of the nation and the world always had the last laugh, swimming faster than everyone and reaching the shore long before the rest of us. SEAL training was a great equalizer. Nothing mattered but your will to succeed, not your color, not your ethnic background, not your education, not your social status. If you want to change the world, measure a person by the size of their heart, not by the size of their flippers. Several times a week, the instructors would line up the class and do a uniform inspection. It was exceptionally thorough. Your hat had to be perfectly starched, your uniform immaculately pressed, your belt buckle shiny and void of any smudges. But it seemed that no matter how much effort you put into starching your hat or pressing your uniform or polishing your belt buckle, it just wasn't good enough. The instructors would find something wrong. For failing uniform inspection, the student had to run, fully clothed, into the surf zone, then wet from head to toe, roll around on the beach until every part of your body was covered with sand. The effect was known as a sugar cookie. You stayed in the uniform the rest of the day, cold, wet, and sandy. There were many a student who just couldn't accept the fact that all their efforts were in vain, that no matter how hard they tried to get the uniform right, it went unappreciated. Those students didn't make it through training. Those students didn't understand the purpose of the drill. You were never going to succeed. You were never going to have a perfect uniform. The instructors weren't going to allow it. Sometimes, no matter how well you prepare, or how well you perform, you still end up as a sugar cookie. It's just the way life is sometimes. If you want to change the world, get over being a sugar cookie and keep moving forward. And you're listening to Admiral William H. McRaven, his commencement address to the University of Texas at Austin, class of 2014. When we come back, the rest of this remarkable commencement speech. This is Our American Stories.
And we return to Our American Stories and Admiral William H. McRaven's commencement address to the University of Texas at Austin class of 2014 and its commencement season across this great country. And so we figured we'd bring you some of the best of the last 10, 15, even 20 years. Let's continue with Admiral McRaven's talk. Every day during training, you were challenged with multiple physical events, long runs, long swims, obstacle courses, hours of calisthenics, something designed to test your mettle. Every event had standards, times you had to meet. If you failed to meet those times, those standards, your name was posted on a list. And at the end of the day, those on the list were invited to a circus. A circus was two hours of additional calisthenics designed to wear you down, to break your spirit, to force you to quit. No one wanted a circus. A circus meant that for that day, you didn't measure up. A circus meant more fatigue, and more fatigue meant that the following day would be more difficult and more circuses were likely. But at some time during SEAL training, everyone, everyone made the circus list. But an interesting thing happened to those who were constantly on the list. Over time, those students who did two hours of extra calisthenics got stronger and stronger. The pain of the circuses built inner strength and physical resiliency. Life is filled with circuses. You will fail. You will likely fail often. It will be painful. It will be discouraging. At times, it will test you to your very core. But if you, don't, if you want to change the world, don't be afraid of the circuses. At least twice a week, the trainees were required to run the obstacle course. The obstacle course contained 25 obstacles, including a 10-foot wall, a 30-foot cargo net, a barbed wire crawl, to name a few. But the most challenging obstacle was the slide for life. It had a three-level, 30-foot tower at one end and a one-level tower at the other. In between was a 200-foot-long rope. You had to climb the three-tiered tower, and once at the top, you grabbed the rope, swung underneath the rope, and pulled yourself hand over hand until you got to the other end. The record for the obstacle course had stood for years when my class began in 1977. The record seemed unbeatable until one day a student decided to go down the slide for life head first. Instead of swinging his body underneath the rope and inching his way down, he bravely mounted the top of the rope and thrust himself forward. It was a dangerous move, seemingly foolish and fraught with risk. Failure could mean injury and being dropped from the course. Without hesitation, the student slid down the rope perilously fast. Instead of several minutes, it only took him half that time. And by the end of the course, he had broken the record. If you want to change the world, sometimes you have to slide down the obstacles head first. During the land warfare phase of training, the students are flown out to San Clemente Island, which lies off the coast of San Diego. The waters off San Clemente are a breeding ground for the great white sharks. To pass SEAL training, there are a series of long swims that must be completed. One is the night swim. Before the swim, the instructors joyfully brief the students on all the species of sharks that inhabit the waters off San Clemente. They assure you, however, that no student has ever been eaten by a shark, at least not that they can remember. But you are also taught that if a shark begins to circle your position, Stand your ground. Do not swim away. Do not act afraid. And if the shark, hungry for a midnight snack, darts towards you, 
then summons up all your strength and punch him in the snout, and he will turn and swim away. There are a lot of sharks in the world. If you hope to complete the swim, you will have to deal with them. So if you want to change the world, don't back down from the sharks. As Navy SEALs, one of our jobs is to conduct underwater attacks against enemy shipping. We practice this technique extensively during training. The ship attack mission is where a pair of SEAL divers is dropped off outside an enemy harbor and then swims well over two miles underwater, using nothing but a depth gauge and a compass to get to the target. During the entire swim, even well below the surface, there is some light that comes through. It is comforting to know that there is open water above you. But as you approach the ship, which is tied to a pier, the light begins to fade. The steel structure of the ship blocks the moonlight. It blocks the surrounding street lamps. It blocks all ambient light. To be successful in your mission, you have to swim under the ship and find the keel, the center line, and the deepest part of the ship. This is your objective. But the keel is also the darkest part of the ship, where you cannot see your hand in front of your face, where the noise from the ship's machinery is deafening, and where it gets to be easily disoriented, and you can fail. Every SEAL knows that under the keel, at that darkest moment of the mission, is a time when you need to be calm, when you must be calm, when you must be composed, when all your tactical skills, your physical power, and your inner strength must be brought to bear. If you want to change the world, you must be your very best in the darkest moments. The ninth week of training is referred to as Hell Week. It is six days of no sleep, constant physical and mental harassment, and one special day at the Mud Flats. The Mud Flats are an area between San Diego and Tijuana where the water runs off and creates the Tijuana Sloughs, a swampy patch of terrain where the mud will engulf you. It is on Wednesday of Hell Week that you paddle down to the Mud Flats and spend the next 15 hours trying to survive this freezing cold, the howling wind, and the incessant pressure to quit from the instructors. As the sun began to set that Wednesday evening, my training class, having committed some egregious infraction of the rules, was ordered into the mud. The mud consumed each man till there was nothing visible but our heads. The instructors told us we could leave the mud if only five men would quit. Only five men, just five men, and we could get out of the oppressive cold. Looking around the mud flat, it was apparent that some students were about to give up. It was still over eight hours till the sun came up, eight more hours of bone-chilling cold. The chattering teeth and the shivering moans of the trainees were so loud, it was hard to hear anything. And then one voice began to echo through the night, one voice raised in song. The song was terribly out of tune, but sung with great enthusiasm. One voice became two and two became three, and before long, everyone in the class was singing. The instructors threatened us with more time in the mud if we kept up the singing, but the singing persisted. And somehow the mud seemed a little warmer, and the wind a little tamer, and the dawn not so far away. If I have learned anything in my time traveling the world, it is the power of hope, the power of one person, a Washington, a Lincoln, King, Mandela, and even a young girl from Pakistan, Malala. One person can change the world 
by giving people hope. So if you want to change the world, start singing when you're up to your neck in mud. Finally, in SEAL training, there's a bell, a brass bell that hangs in the center of the compound for all the students to see. All you have to do to quit is ring the bell. Ring the bell, and you no longer have to wake up at 5 o'clock. Ring the bell, and you no longer have to be in the freezing cold swims. Ring the bell, and you no longer have to do the runs, the obstacle course, the PT, and you no longer have to endure the hardships of training. All you have to do is ring the bell to get out. If you want to change the world, don't ever, ever ring the bell. To the class of 2014, you are moments away from graduating, moments away from beginning your journey through life, moments away from starting to change the world for the better. It will not be easy, but you are the class of 2014, the class that can affect the lives of 800 million people in the next century. Start each day with a task completed. Find someone to help you through life. Respect everyone. Know that life is not fair and that you will fail often. But if you take some risks, step up when the times are the toughest, face down the bullies, lift up the downtrodden, and never, ever give up. If you do these things, the next generation and the generations that follow will live in a world far better than the one we have today. And what started here will indeed have changed the world for the better. And what a speech and what advice. And Stan and I were talking about this, and it's just, uh, it's a unique culture. I mean, you have to ring yourself out. No one gets fired from this training. You quit. And if you don't quit, well, you make it. And what a unique thing. I mean, what a unique and beautiful thing. If you want to change the world, start singing when you're up to your neck in mud. And if you want to change the world, don't ever, ever ring the bell. You've been listening to Admiral William H. McRaven, his commencement address to the University of Texas at Austin, class of 2014. And my goodness, parts of this speech became a big best-selling book. Make your bed. What advice. What a great way to just start your day. And then on and on, one after another, words of wisdom, words to live by. Again, Admiral William H. McRaven's commencement address here at Our American Stories. continue here with our American stories and here on this show you know we love music and we've talked about this great American singer on the show before as part of our series this day in music history called the first lady of song Ella Fitzgerald was the most popular female jazz singer and song vocalist in the United States for more than a half century she interpreted much of the great American songbook and she worked with all the jazz greats from Duke Ellington, Count Basie, and Nat King Cole, to Frank Sinatra, Dizzy Gillespie, and Benny Goodman. Lady Ella, as she was also dubbed, was the first African-American woman to win a Grammy. And after taking home her first two Grammys in 1958, she would go on to win 11 more. Most don't know the tragedy of her upbringing, though, that growing up trying to make it on the streets of New York, the young Ella helped her family out with financial struggles by working as a messenger running numbers. 
and acting as a lookout for a brothel. But her first career aspiration, she wanted to be a dancer. But like many epic American stories, her talent, it could not be hidden. After her mother's death in the early 1930s, Ella had tried to make it on her own and was living on the streets. Still harboring dreams of becoming an entertainer, she entered an amateur contest at Harlem's Apollo Theater. Ella blew the audience away when she sang the Hoagie Carmichael tune, Judy, as well as the object of my affection. And she went on to win the contest's $25 first place prize. This was the performance that launched her career. Today, we offer you an ode to the First Lady of Song, a compilation of some of her performances and through the lens of a poem written about Ella. Here's Sarah Moore performing that piece. I took one look at you That's all I meant to do And then my heart stood still A poem for Ella Fitzgerald By Sonia Sanchez When she came on this stage, this Ella, there were rumors of hurricanes and over the rooftops of concert stages, the moon turned red in the sky. It was Ella, Ella, queen had come and words spilled out, leaving a trail of witnesses smiling. Amen, amen, a woman, a woman. She began this three-aged woman, nightingales in her throat, and squads of horns came out to greet her. Streams of violins and pianos splash their welcome, and our stained-glass silences, our braided spaces unraveled, opened up, said, Who's that coming? Who's that knocking at the door? Whose voice lingers on that stage gone mad with perdido, perdido, perdido? I lost my heart in Toledo. Whose voice is climbing? Up this morning, chimney smoking with life, carrying her basket of words. A tisket, a tasket, my little yellow basket. I wrote a letter to my mommy, and all the way I dropped it. Was it red? No, 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 no. Was it green? No, 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 no. Was it blue? No, 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 no. Voice rescuing razor-thin lyrics from hopscotching dreams. We first watch her navigating an Apollo stage amid high-stepping yellow legs. We watched her watching us. Shiny and pure woman, sugar and spice woman. Her voice a nun's whisper. Her voice pouring out. Guitar thickened blues. Her voice a faraway horn questioning the wind. And she became Ella. First Lady of Tongues, Ella cruising our veins, voice walking on water, crossed in prayer, she became holy. A thousand sermons concealed in her bones as she raised them in a symphonic shudder, carrying our sighs into her bloodstream. This voice, chasing the morning waves, this Ella Tonian voice soft like four layers of lace, 
When I die, Ella, tell the whole joint. Please, please don't talk about me when I'm gone. I remember waiting one night for her appearance. Audience impatient at the lateness of musicians. I remember it was April and the flowers ran yellow. The sun downpoured yellow butterflies and the day was yellow and silent. All of spring held us and a single drop of blood. She appeared on stage, she became nut arching over us, feet and hands placed on the stage, music flowing from her breasts. She swallowed the sun, sang confessions from the evening stars, made earth divulge her secrets, gave birth to skies in her song, remade the insistent air, and we became anointed, found inside her bop. Lady, 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 be good. Be good to me, to you, to us all. Cause we just some lonesome babes in the woods. Hey, lady, sweet Ella, lady, 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 be good. Ella, 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 lady, be good, good, good. And what a beautiful reading by Sarah Moore, Sonia Sanchez's beautiful 1934 poem celebrating Ella Fitzgerald. And Ella was certainly in a class of her own. She redefined jazz and soul for the nation, and she did so while breaking down racial barriers and going against the odds in every conceivable way. No great story is devoid of tragedy, by the way, and Ella sure had her own. She battled drugs, divorce and racism throughout her career and her rise to stardom, and she also suffered from diabetes, which ultimately took her life in 1996. But what she remembered for? That voice. There's nothing like it. That scatting. The performances. She left audience after audience with an experience unlike anything they'd ever known before. There were those musicians that joined trends, and there were those that set trends. But Ella still belonging to a deep and collaborative musical heritage, transform music forever. And while it is her rendition of Mac the Knife in 1960 that broke her into the pop charts, she was still going strong well into the 70s, playing concerts across the globe, doing shows with Frank Sinatra, recording with Duke Ellington, and singing with a Benny Goodman orchestra. She recorded more than 200 albums and sang some 2,000 songs in her lifetime and sold 40 million albums. And while Mel Torme described her as the high priestess of song, in Bing Crosby's own words, quote, man, woman, or child, Ella is the greatest of them all, end quote. 
Ella Fitzgerald's story, her music, in a poem. Sonia Sanchez's poem. Again, a beautiful job here by Sarah Moore. And let's go out with one of my favorites. It's Ella singing the Gershwin classic, Summertime. This is Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And our next story comes from Michael Lella, who shared his dad's incredible story at fee.org. That's F-E-E dot org, the terrific website of the Foundation for Economic Education. And he graciously recorded it for us. If you were 17 and growing up in Milan, Italy in 1943... More than likely, you would have been forced, indoctrinated, and brainwashed into fascism. The dictator of Italy responsible for it, Benito Mussolini, had been in power since 1922. My dad was born in 1926. The voice and image of Il Duce, as Italians were obliged to call Mussolini, were ubiquitous in Italy at the time. Mussolini would ultimately drag the country into the Second World War on the side of Germany's Adolf Hitler. My father is now 92 and lives an hour north of Milan. His name is Pino Lella. If you had to pick a time to be a teenager in Milan, 1943 would have been the worst of choices. In June, as my dad was nearing his 17th birthday, the British began an intensive six-month bombing campaign. It left a third of the city's population homeless, about 400,000 people. My father and his younger brother, my uncle Mimo, narrowly escaped death one night following the bombing of a movie theater. They were there to see You Were Never Lovelier with Fred Astaire and Rita Hayworth, and they witnessed many casualties. My grandfather, Michele, in an effort to keep his boys from becoming victims of the continued bombing, sent my father and uncle to a Catholic boys' school. They were familiar with this school because it was there that they had learned to ski and loved the mountains as children. The school was located high in the Alps, above Lake Como, not far from the Swiss border. It was called Casa Alpina, and it was run by a very courageous priest by the name of Father Luigi Ray. Being the oldest of the boys, my dad was singled out by Father Ray and trained to become an alpine guide. At first, my father knew nothing of the Nazi brutality against Jews and others. In fact, he had learned to respect the Nazi high command, many of whom were customers of his family's leather goods store in Milan. They had occupied Milan as brothers in arms to defend Milan from the British bombing. But my dad became brutally aware of the Nazi crimes in September of 1943 when word came of 52 prominent Jews being rounded up by the Nazis and executed in the village of Mena on Lago Maggiore. 
Their bodies were thrown into the lake for the local citizens to see. It was then that many Italians rebelled and began hiding and protecting their Jewish-Italian friends. They formed an underground railroad, a network of escape routes, similar to the one that was developed to save American slaves before and during America's Civil War. One of the network routes led through to Casalpina. This was where their Lello brothers were sent to wait out the bombing of Milan. For nine harrowing months while at Casalpina, from the fall of 1943 through June of 1944, the month of his 18th birthday, my father guided many Jewish refugees across the Alps into neutral Switzerland to escape Italy. He risked his life evading Nazi patrols, surviving avalanches and grenade attacks. He was robbed by bandits disguising themselves as anti-fascist partisans. He often carried the weak and the elderly on his back in the dead of winter over the top of the Alps, some of the world's most rugged mountain terrain. Some had embarked on this journey with my father in such a way that they wore street shoes, not exactly hiking gear for the Alps in below zero temperatures. At the time, my dad simply did what he was told to do and thought little of it. Father Ray instructed him to take people to safety, and so he did it. He knew it was dangerous, of course, but even to this day, he doesn't think of what he did as heroic. He had faith in doing the right thing, and such a high regard for Father Ray that he would have done anything for him. The missions gave him an identity, a meaningful purpose, and an opportunity to lead. And like many 17-year-olds with reckless abandon, he thrived on the excitement and adventure of it all, at least while it lasted. In June of 1944, my father turned 18, the age at which young Italians were drafted by the state into the military. He had two choices. He could join Mussolini's fascist army and quite likely end up on the Russian front. His other option was to conscript with the German army. His aunt and uncle had connections that might land him a secure and hopefully a safer job in the organization Todd. This was the armament and the construction division of the Third Reich. For his safety, but against his wishes, Pino's father and mother talked him into enlisting in the German army. Dad reluctantly donned the military uniform with a Nazi swastika. What happened next was almost unbelievable. Through a series of extraordinary circumstances, including his wounding during an Allied bombing raid, my father was ordered back to Milan to convalesce for two weeks. Then, with a little help from family and his ability to speak French and drive a car, he landed a position as the personal driver and confidant for one of Hitler's most mysterious officers in the German high command. He was a man so powerful in Italy that he responded directly, personally, and only to Adolf Hitler. His name was General Hans Lairs, the plenipotentiary of the Italian sector for organization taught. To Pino's aunt and uncle, his assignment as a driver for such a powerful figure was a serendipitous opportunity of a lifetime. It could help change the direction of the war. They understood the importance of it because they were already working in secret for the Allies and the Italian resistance. 
the kind of information their nephew would now have access to could be critical for the fight against the Germans. My father, still a teenager, as a new and personal driver for this top Nazi commander, became a spy known to the Allies as the Observer. For the last year of the war, while driving General Lairs around northern Italy, my dad learned the locations of tank traps, landmines, ammunition tunnels, and every fortification between Florence and Milan. He observed the Germans' main defensive positions. He secretly documented troop movements. He took notes and photos. And he fed mounds of that crucial information to the Allies by using Uncle Albert's shortwave OSS radio. More than once, my father was nearly caught, which would likely have led to his torture and execution. But he kept the trust of an unwitting General Layers. My dad personally witnessed the Nazi persecution of Jews, as well as the working to death of slaves from many faiths and nationalities in work camps, hoping and dreaming that one day he could testify against those responsible. At midnight on April 24th, 1945, upon orders from the resistance, my father single-handedly arrested General Hans Lairs and delivered him to the American command, which was led by 5th U.S. Army Major Frank Nabel. For the next five days, he became Major Nabel's personal guide and translator, at last discarding his uniform and the Nazi swastika. On April 28th, Pino and Major Nabel witness a hideous moment in Italian history the public desecration of Mussolini's body in Piazzale Loreto amid the hysteria and fanaticism of the frenzied Italian mobs. Hitler killed himself in Berlin two days later. With the deaths of the two fascist dictators, my father thought he was finished with the war. But in fact, the war wasn't quite finished with him. In early May, the famous Brenner Pass through the Alps was the most dangerous corner of Europe. The German army was retreating from Italy through the pass into Austria. Thousands of Nazi troops who refused to surrender were on the run, being chased down and cut off by Italian resistance fighters and the U.S. Army. In the midst of this, my father was asked if he would do America a favor and accept the final mission. The Americans asked my dad to be a guide one last time, leading one final escape from Italy. His mission was to drive an important, high-ranking Nazi from American custody to the Austrian border, where he could safely be interrogated for the intelligence he possessed about Hitler's Reich. Who was this top general my dad was enlisted to escort to safety? None other than the very man he had driven for, the very man he had arrested and turned over to the Allies just weeks before, General Hans Lairs. Distraught and tormented over the events of the last week of the war, my father accepted that final mission. You can only imagine the conversation in the car between my dad and General Lairs. By the evening of that same day, May 3rd, 1945, my dad delivered General Lairs to the Americans awaiting for him on the Austrian border. That final escort ended my father's involvement in World War II, but like many of that greatest generation, 
The experience and the weeks preceding the war's end continued to haunt him for the rest of his life. And to hear the rest of Pino Lella's remarkable story, pick up Mark Sullivan's best-selling book about him, Beneath a Scarlet Sky. And thanks to the son, Michael, again, who shared his dad's incredible story at feed.org. Great job, as always, on this Alex and Joey. Michael's story, his dad's story, a great World War II story here on Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, from history to business, and everything in between. And we love to tell your stories. Send them to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And this next one you're about to hear, this next story, well, it's an odd one, a quirky one. It's about the radioactive Boy Scout. Here's Jesse. David Hahn was an average kid growing up in the suburbs of Detroit during the 1980s, except when it came to science and the Boy Scouts. When those two worlds collided, he ended up building a homemade nuclear reactor in his parents' tool shed. His house was raided by the Environmental Protection Agency. They dismantle the shed, haul it away, and bury it out in the middle of the Utah desert. Okay, down here in the basement, I have a few of my older scout uniforms uh, here. I love being in the scouts. It was great. Exploring in the woods, campfires, uh, wilderness survival. Uh, I think it was a good scout, but once in a while, uh, I went outside the boundaries. The Boy Scouts of America created the Atomic Energy Merit Badge in 1963. One of the options to receive said merit badge was to build a model nuclear reactor. Uh, this is my uh, merit badge sash right here. And my three favorites here were atomic energy, chemistry, and general science. I was interested in nuclear energy before I even came in the Scouts. And they explained to me that they had this neat little looking badge with the atom and electron circling around it. And I thought that would be cool to have. And it was easy for David to learn about atomic energy. Boy Scouts published a book about it. Han got his hands on it set off to work with instructions to, quote, build a model of a reactor, show the fuel, control rods, shielding, moderator, and any cooling material, explain how a reactor could be used to change nuclear energy into electrical energy to make things radioactive. Smoke detectors, watches, thorium lantern mantles, heart pacemakers. Those were some practical everyday radiation sources. I didn't understand how easy it was to perform nuclear experiments until I read this book. The Atomic Energy Merit Badge was renamed to the Nuclear Science Merit Badge in 2005. The requirements no longer list building a model reactor as an option to earn the badge. John Griffin is with Boy Scouts of America. A lot of people 
seem to think that it's unusual that there's an atomic energy merit badge. Uh, but I don't think it's any more unusual than some of the other specialized badges that we have, like uh, beekeeping or snow sports. David was awarded his atomic energy merit badge on May 10th of 1991. He was 14 years old. To earn it, he made a drawing showing how nuclear fission occurs, visited a hospital radiology unit to learn about the medical uses of radioisotopes and build and model reactor using a juice can, coat hangers, soda straws, kitchen matches, and rubber bands. But by now, David had far greater ambitions. After achieving the rank of Eagle Scout, Han decided that he wanted to experiment with real radioactivity not merely the models that he had used to earn his badge. Aside from the Atomic Energy Instruction book, there was yet another book that would play a major role in David's obsession, The Golden Book of Science Experiments. If any of you can get your hands on it, it's very instructive. It's a very fun book, unlike most of today's science books for kids. Ken Silverstein wrote the definitive book about David Hahn, The Radioactive Boy Scout, the frightening true story of a whiz kid and his homemade nuclear reactor. It's actually quite amazing to compare the Golden Book, which was written in 1960, which was, you know, this is when JFK was talking about putting um, people on the moon. You know, you had the Russians with Sputnik. This was an era when science was emerging and it was thought that science could cure all of our ills. The Golden Book of Chemistry Experiments taught David how to make chlorine gas. It taught him how to make chloroform. It taught him how to blow things up, which of course every 12, 13, 14 year old boy wants to do. I mean, what's more fun than blowing things up? Um, with chloroform, he actually made his, a homemade batch. Um, the Golden Book, the only caution the Golden Book gave to David, um, or to any of its readers, was uh, don't breathe too deeply. And of course, being a 14 year old boy, he breathed too deeply. And he said that he ended up flat on his back. He didn't know for how long, but it knocked him out cold. You go into a bookstore today and get a comparable book for, for kids, and it's really amazing. You know, the experiments, I, I think we may have been overly lawyered as a culture or something, because everything is risk-free. I mean, the Golden Book could never be published today. Um, the, uh, the ones today, there are no moving parts, no electricity. God forbid there should be a flame, um, because that could be terribly dangerous. And so you end up with experiments like building a wormery, or let's have fun with the wind. I mean, these are real titles of, ex of experiments that I, f I found in, in, in today's science books for kids. But David, you know, his, his mind was just, the Golden Book really unleashed this fervor and passion for science, and one can see why if you go back and, and look at it. When we come back, the story of the radioactive Boy Scout continues right here on Our American Stories. And when we come back, we're going to continue this story of David Hahn, the radioactive Boy Scout. And as we had said earlier, we want to hear your stories, particularly stories about adventure, about risk-taking as a kid. And, well, I don't think there's enough of it. I think we can all agree there's not. Uh, that's one of the points in the beginning of this story. So send them to ouramericannetwork.org. Your stories as a kid, risk-taking, your Boy Scout stories, too. Uh, very important to us. We've spent a lot of time talking about the Scouts, particularly the impact of Eagle Scouts on this country. The number of lives saved by Boy Scouts. It's an American city or two that wouldn't be here today without just simply the work that Boy Scouts have done to save a life. Through lifeguarding, through putting their own body in harm's way to protect another human being. 
one of the great American organizations, the Boy Scouts. When we come back, more of the radioactive Boy Scout, David Hahn, his story here on Our American Stories. We continue with our American stories, and we return now to the radioactive Boy Scout. After the EPA raided 17-year-old David Hahn's parents' home in suburban Detroit, removed the radioactive storage shed, and sent it to be buried in the Utah desert, it cost $75,000 to clean up David's mess. But he wasn't charged. He hadn't broken any laws. Did he do anything wrong? I knew what I was doing wasn't completely right, but uh, I believe it was important to experiment. In life, uh, this is a quote, uh, you know, if you don't take risks, you don't do anything. If you don't do anything, you are nothing, end quote. And that's just something I heard on the radio. And that's sort of been my philosophy with chemistry and experiments. One night as David's parents were sitting in the living room watching TV, the house was rocked by an explosion in the basement. They found David lying semi-conscious on the floor, his eyebrows smoldering. Unaware that red phosphorus was explosive, David had been pounding on it with a screwdriver, causing it to ignite. What turns this seemingly average middle-class kid from the suburbs into a mad scientist? Here again is author Ken Silverstein. He didn't start off thinking about building a nuclear reactor. He started off with this idea that it would be neat to collect every item on the periodic table of elements. And as one of his physics teachers said to me, I thought it was a little weird, you know, I mean, at his age, I wanted to own an automobile and he wants to own every item on the periodic table, but it seemed harmless enough. So David goes out and he starts collecting these things. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the periodic table. A lot of the items on the periodic table are not scary or dangerous. I mean, you've got calcium, nickel, gold, copper. And so these things, of course, are very easy. But David decides that he also wants to get the elements at the higher end of the table, and that's where you start getting into the radioactive materials. Some of these aren't so hard to obtain, actually, as it turns out. One of the things I learned in researching the book was that a lot of radioactive elements can be obtained in household items or industrial tools, which you might be able to get your hands on. For example, smoke detectors contain a small chip of americium, which is a radioactive element. It's a little silver chip in the detector, which actually triggers the alarm. So if the smoke starts building up in the house, it's the americium that triggers the alarm and lets you know, get out of the house. He got some of these when he was away at a Boy Scout camp. The other boys in his group were um, breaking into the girls' camp, and David was, while they were away, stealing these smoke detectors from the ceilings of all the cabins that they were staying in. And then he also, he was always extremely clever. Um, he, He would don a variety of disguises. 
The simplest ones would be, I'm a student working on a project. So he wrote away, and I got copies of the letters actually, he wrote away to a smoke detector company, and he said he was working on a, a school project and he needed as many smoke detectors as he could get. And the nice women in customer service wrote back and said, well, that's just great. We happen to have lots laying around of a, I think it was a discontinued model. So suddenly, a hundred boxes of smoke detectors are arriving at David's house in suburban Detroit. And he's extracting the americium chip and welding it together in his backyard to make a ball of americium, which he wants to create a neutron gun, which you can use to irradiate radioactive elements and make them further radioactive. He had other very clever disguises as well, though. I mean, he at one point became Professor David Hahn, and he was a physics professor at a local high school in Detroit, writing letters to the nuclear industry and to government officials, you know, desperately wanting to enrich his students' lives, um, and writing away for material that ostensibly he was going to be teaching his students, but in fact, information he needed to try to build a nuclear reactor, unbeknownst to the people he was writing to. It should be clear by now the lengths that this kid was willing to go through to get the one thing he wanted, radioactivity. Oh, here we go. Smoke detectors have uh, one microcurie of americium-241. That was always good as a source material for alpha particles. The containers, the labware, it's all here. Let's see. Sodium hypochlorite. Propane I needed. Yes, lithium right here. Six-volt lithium. I would get as many of those batteries as I could, even though they were expensive. In addition to aramecium, David also finds a way to get his hands on radium. I think it's got a half-life of something like 30 million years or something. I mean, it's highly radioactive, a very dangerous substance. Back in the 20s and 30s, and even in fact a little bit later, radium used to be painted on the dials, on the face of clocks. If you, even today, if you go to an antique store and you find an old antique clock, which is exactly what David did, it will almost surely have been painted with radium to make it glow in the dark. They stopped doing that because they discovered, of course, that radium kills people. And what happened was that there was a very famous case of the so-called radium dial women, these young women, all women, in the 1920s, the early painters of these clocks, they took the, uh, a little paintbrush, they dip it in the paint, this tiny little vial of paint, because it was extremely expensive, and then they'd make a fine point in their mouth with the paintbrush, and many, many of them died a terrible death of cancer. So at that point, um, or at some point, they decided, we better not do this anymore, and they substituted phosphorus, I think, initially. Radium will glow forever. Phosphorus lasts five or ten years, so you have to redo it. He went into an antique store in suburban Detroit. He was driving to his girlfriend's house, and he goes in with his Geiger counter. He was always wandering around suburban Detroit with his Geiger counter. He goes in, and he's testing these clocks, and he gets this extraordinary clicking from his Geiger counter on one clock. And he buys it, and he takes it home, and this was his big haul. It turned out that the painter of the clock probably 30 or 40 years earlier, it was a wall clock, a big wall clock, had left a vial of radium paint inside the clock. And so that was his big haul of radium. His new reactor was a bored out block of lead. He used lithium from $1,000 worth of purchased batteries to purify the thorium ash using a Bunsen burner. But how did David get his hands on thorium? Lantern socks. There's a piece called the mantle, which looks like a little doll sock. It, it conducts the flame um, in, in one of those gas lanterns. Those used to be coated with a thorium dioxide. I don't believe they are anymore, possibly because of David Hahn's experiments. I don't know, but I think they've stopped using thorium 
David, he went to a, uh, a surplus store, a camping store, and he got huge quantities of these old lanterns. And he took the mantles out, he crushed them up, he purified them. It later turned out when it was tested by the EPA that he had purified thorium to a level eight times higher than the Nuclear Regulatory Commission requires for a license. David was well aware of the situation, and he got scared. He decides to dismantle the entire operation and load it into the trunk of his car, when suddenly... He gets stopped by the police. The police open up the trunk of his car, because David's very nervous, and they discover all of this weird stuff. I mean, there are cubes back there, there's all sorts of, like, mercury switches. There's a toolbox that is taped shut with electrician's tape. And the police decide it's an atomic bomb and that David is a teenage terrorist, which he was not. I mean, he never had bad intentions. I want to stress that. The police, for some reason, which has never become clear, decide to tow a car containing what they think is an atomic bomb to their headquarters. And then they go, oh, no, we may have an A-bomb in the parking lot and they have to quarantine part of the parking lot and notify the authorities in Lansing, Michigan, the state authorities, and they did. I mean, they contact the state authorities who contact the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and they have a full-fledged little mini-nuclear crisis on their hands. It's a lot of chaos from one 17-year-old kid just trying to chase down the one thing that gets him going. His chance encounter with the police triggers a federal radiological emergency response involving the FBI and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. On June 26th of 1995, the EPA, having designated Han's mother's property as a Superfund hazardous materials cleanup site, dismantled the shed and its contents and buried them as low-level radioactive waste in Utah. I believe I did uh, produce a few atoms of, of plutonium, maybe uh, a couple fissions here and there, but I don't think anything sustained any kind of reaction. See, I believe that it was the thought that counted. He wasn't trying to hurt anybody. Was highly intelligent, a little strange, extremely motivated. In the end, he just wanted to be left alone with his experiments. If somebody thinks they can accomplish something, and if somebody's willing to take some risk out there, and their underlying intentions are good, then sometimes the laws don't always apply. And it's not a story that ends well. He became depressed after the scandal, and his mother committed suicide. He graduated high school and enlisted in the Navy, assigned to the nuclear-powered USS Enterprise aircraft carrier. He joined the Marines and was stationed in Japan before he was honorably discharged on medical grounds. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia. On September 27, 2016, at the age of 39, David Hahn died. The radioactive Boy Scout, his death ruled accidental due to the intoxication from the combined effects of alcohol and fentanyl. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Should it be illegal to have the clocks? Uh, should life be illegal? The Constitution, I live a land, in the land of the free. So um, if I'm not hurting anybody, why shouldn't I be free?
This is Our American Stories, and one of our favorite subjects is work, what we do, how we got there, and why, and the intersection of commerce, too, because we spend a lot of our times working or scheming or trying to figure out how to get a product to market or how to come up with something new, and sometimes we just do it on general principle, just for fun. And today we're talking to a man with a dream job for anyone who loves the outdoors or animals, and we first learned of him in a Wall Street Journal article by Harriet Torrey, which began with these words. The first time the bears steal human food, they are relocated 30 miles away. The second time, it's 60 miles. And the third time, it's 100. After that, they become consumer product consultants. And by the way, the headline of that article was, Nice Trash Can, Let's See What the Bears Think. And, well, we're joined by Randy Gravatt, a man with many jobs at the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center in West Yellowstone, Montana, God's country, if ever there is, in this great country, among them running the Bear Safety Product Testing Division. And, Randy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Hey, Randy, just a bit about yourself first, your parents, uh, where you grew up, and some of your passions as a young guy. Sure. I grew up in uh, northeast Pennsylvania in the Poconos, but uh, 21 years ago, uh, came out to Yellowstone, visited, and fell in love with the place, and uh, ended up moving here. I actually live in Idaho, but work in Montana. I'm only 10 miles away from from the uh, Montana border. Yep. And, and yes, uh, I do have a dream job, um, and, and love my job. I've been here at the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center 18 years. You know what people don't know, and so often forget in this great country, is you get out of Philadelphia and you go through the rest of Pennsylvania and the Poconos. No, it's not Yellowstone, but my goodness, hunting, fishing. And plenty of bears, right? Yes, very much so. Pennsylvania is one of the leading states with black bears. No grizzlies, but lots of black bears. And they're no friend when you're, when you're lost in the woods, are they? Sure, sure. You know, when you surprise a bear, whether it's a black bear or a grizzly, uh, on, on a food source or a mom and her cubs, they can be uh, very defensive. Yeah, news alert while hiking. Don't disturb the bear. This is exactly. pretty simple. And uh, so your, your, your parents, tell us a little bit about your, your, their life and a little bit about what they instilled in you, values, your, you know, what you care about, uh, Randy. Sure, sure. Sadly, my dad's not, no longer with us, but my dad was a drill instructor in, in the Marines, so I drew up, uh, grew up with a pretty stern uh, background there. Uh, my mom's still alive. She's down in Florida enjoying the warm weather. And by the way, we were 39 below zero uh, here in West Yellowstone, Montana this morning, so still trying to warm up. Yeah, and you're not getting mom to visit anytime soon, are you? Oh, no, not when she lives in Florida. Now, tell me this, as, you, as you're, you're doing different jobs along the way, ultimately all of it's to get connected to that great landscape, I can only assume. Yes, very much so. I, I am an avid hunter, hiker, fly fisherman, and it's all right in my backyard here. And tell folks about, about Yellowstone and, and the folks uh, who are listening who've never been, uh, what they're missing uh, what they should come and see, and when is a particularly good time to come for those who might be inclined to not want to fight the lines or the, or the, or the traffic or the population that swells? Talk a bit about Yellowstone. Yeah, well, Yellowstone is very, very big. It's 2.2 million acres. Uh, it is only open to vehicle traffic right around the end of April, uh, right to around the 1st of November, and that's because of the depth of snow that we get. But... Um, to me, the best time to come is either the end of May or the first two weeks of June. Um, after that, you know, with the kids getting out of school, it does get 
uh, very crowded, and it seems to take away the, you know, the beauty of it when there's so many vehicles and so many people. But uh, I've spent a many a day in Yellowstone Park in the month of May and have seen ten bears in, in one day. You do have to be prepared for inclement weather. Um, the park can, you know, elevation-wise can go very, very high, um, and, and so it could snow at any time of the year. Uh, snow has been recorded every month of the year, July, August, um, so pretty crazy. But in the wintertime, definitely a special time to come. You can either go in on a snowmobile or what's called a snow coach, and you experience how the animals that are still in the park, because there is a lot of animals that, that migrate out of the park, but in the wintertime you have a much better appreciation for those animals that are trying to find a food source when it's, you know, 20, 30, 40 below zero and, and five, six feet of snow on the ground. You know, National Geographic recently did a full, full uh, subject and full issue on Yellowstone, and it, and it spent quite a bit of time on the bears and bear attacks. And I don't know if they were on the increase or just that there's more uh, human contact. Uh, but talk about, you know, the, 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 the nature of that uh, assault and what people can do to prevent it before we dig into this Wall Street Journal article on the other side. I mean, that's got to be the worst thing that can happen to you. But what are things you do to either prevent it? Can you, can you figure out where the bears are ahead of time? And then, B, when you see one, what do you do? What do you actually do? Sure, sure. So, so there's an estimated uh, population of 700 grizzlies in Yellowstone Park and an average of one bear attack uh, per year where there's uh, around 4 million visitors. So... The chance of getting attacked is, is, is pretty slim, a uh, better chance of getting struck by lightning. But if and when that encounter does happen, there's, there's a couple things that you need to do. Is, is, um, uh, before you, uh, you're leaving the trailhead, you want to um, uh, make some noise. You're walking with a group of people, perhaps. You hear the bear bells that people might wear on their shoes. The whole idea is that uh, grizzly bears in particular do not like to be surprised. And so if you're making noise, you're walking down a trail, um, more than likely you're not going to see a bear because you're going to scare that bear away. But let's say you see that bear at 200 yards, uh, mom and, and two cubs perhaps, a grizzly. And so you're going to talk in a low-com voice, kind of let the bear know, hey, I'm a human, I'm not a, you know, an antelope, I'm not a deer, and, and you're going to start to obviously walk away um, but not run. Running elicits a chase response, so you want to uh, return to the trailhead, return to your car. But if that bear does decide to charge you, hopefully you've remembered to have your pepper spray, your bear pepper spray, and you're going to have it on your hip where it's easily accessible. That bear is charging at you. That bear can run 35 miles an hour. That's 42 feet per second. So you have to be ready. And, and yes, that bear is going to be very close, 10, 15 feet away, 20 feet away when you start to discharge that can. Um, and with a bear's sense of smell, smelling food up to 18 miles away, um, they, they are greatly affected by that bear pepper spray, and, and it basically renders them useless for a couple hours. They, um, uh, you know, their, their eyes are watering, they're, they're tearing, they're coughing, and, uh, and then, of course, you're going the opposite way. But fortunately, not too many encounters, but, yes, you need to be prepared. You need to look for fresh bear scat, fresh bear sign, and let those uh, bears know that you are out there hiking. Yeah, and that's, that is pretty extraordinary. Four million visitors, 700 grizzlies, and only one bear attack per year. But there, there are probably multiple sightings, I would assume. Oh, yeah, very much so, yeah. It, it, it's a, um, a, a, a personal, you know, uh, 
uh, distance that you need to stay away from those bears, and whether it be a bison, 1,500-pound bison, have a, a personal space, just like a grizzly bear, just like a moose. And so if you get into that bear's personal space, then you're threatening that bear, and, and, and perhaps that bear is thinking that you are a threat to them, even, even though you know, we don't want to have anything to do with them. And, and so, again, you need to, to let your presence be known to those bears. And, and no, people see, see bears all the time. What, what ends up happening is you got the camera in your hand, you want to get that great shot, so you just keep getting closer and closer, and before you know it, uh, whether it's mom and the cubs, uh, and they basically say, hey, that's, that's too close, and then she charges. Yeah, and by the way, don't get cl- too close to my wife in the morning either. I give her lots of space. When we come back, Randy Gravatt, the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center, and he has a great job, a job that obviously he just loves, and it's running the bear safety product testing over at the Grizzly Wolf and Discovery Center. He lives in Idaho, works in the beautiful state of Montana, West Yellowstone. When we come back, more with Randy Gravatt. This is Our American Stories. Black bears weigh between two and five hundred pounds. Brown bears weigh between 300 and over 1,000 pounds. Black bears run away from you. Brown bears run at you. When attacked by a bear, simply lie still on the ground and cover your face and head with your hands. When the bear is finished batting you around and mauling you, contact the U.S. Forest Service. This is Our American Stories, and we pick up where we left off with Randy Gravatt, a man with many jobs at the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center in West Yellowstone, Montana, among them running the bear safety product testing. So before we dig into the testing, talk to the audience about the multiple types of bears that are out there. How many types are there that Americans can encounter? And what are they like, these different types? Because the bears are very different as categories, aren't they? Yeah, there's, um, you know, in, in North America, we have, the brown, we have the brown bear, which is also the grizzly bear, and then we have the black bear. The grizzly bears pretty much are only in both uh, in Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming. And they're very intelligent animals. I, I think that needs to be stated. And they're also very food-driven. Talk about those two things. Sure. They're, they're very, very smart. They also have huge appetites, and that's what tends to get them into trouble where we may average 2,000 calories a day, a bear could average 5,000, and then, then that number even goes much, much higher right before hibernation. It could be as high as 20,000 calories a day so that they could build up those fat reserves before hibernating. And so where do the problems come between people and bears? I assume it's just the food. It is, it is. Um, when, when bears gain access to unsecured um, um, unnatural foods, whether it be dog food, whether it be the, the bird feeder, whether it be the garbage, uh, the dirty barbecue grill, um, those bears are going to take full advantage of that easier meal than going out in the woods and tearing apart a log and getting some ants 
and some 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 grubs perhaps and and some blueberries huckleberries um, and so they're going to go the easy route every time and the problem lies that that when they become you know unafraid of people they become around our houses there's then uh, the potential for problems as in a, a bear attack to humans and so in, in in large measure many of these problems are occurring and I would I would assume the outlying suburbs that intersect with nature and intersect with the woods and even in, in traditional suburbia? Talk about that. Sure, sure. As we continue it to expand into, into bear country, it, it definitely is a big factor where more problems arise. Uh, where a bear once freely roamed through that meadow, through that field, through that woods, now there's a mall, now there's a housing development perhaps. And, and so it's definitely very, very tough for them. You know, on average, a female bear has a home range of around 50 miles and a male uh, double that if not even a little bit more so they travel a great distance throughout the day always searching for food and why didn't why and how did the grizzly and wolf discovery center where you work become the place uh, to test bear safety products where, where and how did that happen randy sure sure well the grizzly and wolf discovery center opened in 1993 and we recently in 2000 became a not-for-profit a wildlife park and educational facility and we were approached by an organization called the IGBC that stands for Interagency Grizzly Bear Committee and it's made up of a bunch of members whether it be Forest Service, Park Service, even Parks Canada, uh, a bunch of uh, great folks and, and the idea is for them to um, sustain the bear population, to monitor the bear population well, with so many bears being put down that, that had gained access to that unnatural foods and the garbage and such, and that were being put down, um, they came up with an idea that uh, there would be a testing program. And with our eight grizzly bears, uh, we made the fit. And around 15 years ago, we were approached to see if, our, uh, if we would be willing to do it. And it's worked out very well. Um, so basically what we do is whether it's a manufacturer that produces a cooler a polycart trash can, a dumpster. Uh, they either ship the product here or they bring the product here, and then we put it into the bear's habitat. We do put the bear's favorite food inside of it, so that would be peanut butter, that would be fish, honey, um, and, and then it has to withstand 60 minutes of contact time. Most of the containers cannot uh, have a hole larger than an inch and a half. If it does, it is considered a fail, and then there is a, a, another factor with those polycart trash cans, those ones that you wheel out to the end of your driveway. A lot of times when they're uh, bear-resistant, uh, you and I would take our finger and put it into a latch mechanism to release that lid. Well, that latch system has to work um, when it's done being tested for that 60 minutes. Walk us through a product testing session and what happens. And I love the, uh, I love Kabuk, or is it Kabuk? The destroyer. Kobach, the destroyer, is your most skilled testing bear. Talk about him or her, and then talk about what this product testing session looks like. And do you have video of this? Because we'd love to see it. Sure, sure. No, I, I definitely have video of it. Um, yeah, Kobach uh, is from Delta Junction, Alaska. Kobach is actually a river uh, in Delta Junction, Alaska. That's how he got his name. But, yeah, he's been here for um, 18 years and he's uh, earned that uh, nickname as Kobuk the Destroyer because he seems to be able to get in the most products. You and I, Lee, we can take our hands, we can, at our wrist, we can turn our hands side to side. Well, a bear cannot do that. 
um, and, and, and some of these trash cans that are being tested, it's ones where you and I would take our fingers and reach up and, and release a latch mechanism. Well, grizzly bears with huge front claws, somehow, some way, Kobuk has learned to, to literally twist his wrist a little bit, twist his body, and get those claws up in there and, and release that mechanism. Um, yeah, most, most manufacturers fear Kobuk the destroyer, but... Uh, many of our other bears are, are very uh, adept at getting into it, be, into the products because, again, there's that special food reward. We test anywhere from 40 to 80 products a year all summer long is our testing season. And um, uh, so when there is no bears in the habitat, uh, I will take a product, I walk it into the habitat, and this is an acre-and-a-half habitat with two ponds with live fish, we take that product, so we'll talk about a cooler. That cooler is going to have padlocks. It has to have padlocks. They're going to rip the rubber latches off right away. So we put the food in, put the, the locks on, put it out there. We leave the habitat before the bears come out. Every product tested is uh, filmed for documentation. But those bears come out of what we call bear den. They come out, and, and with their sense of smell and their vision, they're, they're able to see that cooler. They're walking up to it. They are uh, biting at it. They're chewing at it. They're rolling it around. They're even flipping it up in the air, perhaps to land on a rock, to maybe break the lock open, to break the latch system, perhaps. Uh, they're, they're super, super smart. And, and, yes, through all these years, because a bear can live up to 30 years long, and, and so some of our bears are very old, and, and through these 15 years of testing, they've learned you know, better, better ways to get in each, each and every time. Yeah, they've learned some tricks as they get older. They do. They do, again, because of that food reward. Yep. So here's an example, Lee. So let's say we had 10 coolers in a row, and every one of those coolers passed the test. The bears were not able to gain access. Well, the chance of a bear trying to get in that 11th cooler uh, is pretty slim because the first 10, they were not able to get in. So you know the term, we throw them a bone. So what we'll do is we'll take a cooler, put that same amount of food inside, but maybe uh, just use zip ties versus padlocks. Bears come out, they get in, they get a food reward, and, and it just, uh, you know, it, it, it excites them all over again to, to keep uh, testing the products. And the hope here, I would assume, is that the, the more uh, bears have no success with human coolers and garbage cans, uh, the better off we all are because there are fewer encounters because the bears don't get that, that beautiful food reward. Exactly. That's the ultimate goal is that it benefits the bears out in the wild. If a bear does not get a food reward from our, our house, our neighborhood, they're going to stay in the woods where they belong. And, and if I may use an example, if we have the Jones and we have um, the Smiths, and the Jones are very, very clean, uh, no bird feeder, no dog food, the barbecue grill, uh, but then the, the neighbors are not so clean, and uh, uh, the uh, mom and two cubs are frequenting the area. Um, it's 11 o'clock at night, and the, the clean family, they, they, somebody forgot something in their vehicle perhaps. They walk outside. It's dark. It's midnight. It's 11 o'clock. And they surprise mom and the cubs. Well, uh, they end up getting mauled where, where here they were the ones that, that were being clean and, and you know, careful with their food when their neighbors made the mistake. And that's why we all need to be on that same page and not allow those bears uh, near our homes. Yeah, but it only takes one or two of us to ruin the ruin it life for the bears and for ourselves. So, uh, well, well taken. Point well taken. How can our listeners, Randy, visit 
and support your Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center? Talk about that. Sure. Um, again, we're not for profit. We are open every day of the year. Uh, obviously, we have a website, uh, grizzlyandwolfdiscovery.org, and then we do have what's called a uh, the webcam for our wolves, a webcam for our bears, so people can view them uh, limited hours in the wintertime, and, and that does bring up something interesting as far as us being 39 below zero this morning. Our bears here at the center, even though we don't do the testing in the wintertime, um, our bears uh, do not hibernate because of a constant food supply. So the same is true for any bear in the wild, whether it be Florida, whether it be Texas, Minnesota. If bears are able to obtain a food source, and whether it be warmer temperatures, they're going to not hibernate and or hibernate for a shorter period of time. Well, Randy, we appreciate you joining us. And we're talking to Randy Gravatt, the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center. And, Randy, we'd love to visit you when we go out. Uh, we're out in Jackson. We have an affiliate there, and we'd love to come visit when we get the chance. And thanks so much for joining us. Excellent. Thank you. Sounds good. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And you can catch all the work we do at OurAmericanNetwork.org. And if you've got stories like this, and we just consider these great American stories, post them at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Again, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories.